0: Hey, this is Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and you're listening to P.F.'s Tape Recorder. And I've been on that show. It's a good show, I think. I'm still figuring out how to listen to podcasts.
1: Hello there. I'm P.F. This is my tape recorder. Coming up, comedian Ian Abramson on comedy theory and Buster Keaton as an influence.
0: What I, what I like about Sunter Keaton and, and other people like that is that, uh, is that he's very precise you know he's got a lot of thought Put into the way that he might make
1: a joke. We're more from Ian in just a bit. The Song of the Week is from Fleer East. They are an X-Factor winner from the UK. I was playing it in the car the other day, and Fangirl really dug it. I think you're going to dig it as well. For the dumb bit, we're going to go into the Wayback Machine. I was having a discussion with somebody about reality TV the other day, and I remember we did this bit way back on episode 30, And I thought it was pretty funny, and I listened to it now, and I still think it's pretty funny. Hopefully you will think so too. Some of the new fans, you know, on board who've been enjoying the dumb bits will enjoy this, and the ones that always skip the dumb bit can do so now. So I took my wife to the local casino on the Big Game Sunday, uh, where, ironically, I couldn't bet on the Big Game. And we stopped at this little restaurant that we liked. It's a few blocks away from the casino. And, uh, first of all, let me tell you, they have the best Mexican. His name is Pedro, and he's so nice. No, I'm kidding. It's, um... Uh, that's kind of a reworking of another joke I do in my uh, stand-up a bit. Kind of the, the fun times you're in store for if you go see me do open mic. Uh, anyway, actually the place is called Acapulco in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. It actually is very good. Huge drinks, huge tasty drinks. Good uh, good food. And uh, just good times. Anyway, we're sitting there at the bar, and uh, thankfully they don't have any of that pre-game rubbish on because I don't care about any of that stuff. I just want—I care about the actual game, which isn't going to start for a couple hours. And instead, they have true TV blaring. True TV, of course, shows all those uh, great reality shows, and uh, there's one on that's called Lizard Lick Towing. Now I don't have cable, so this is kind of a treat. Uh, I'd never heard of this show. Apparently it's semi-popular. And just basically what it is, is uh, this guy down in North Carolina runs a towing business. Uh, His wife works with him. His buddy works with him. And they have all all kinds of misadventures repossessing people's uh, vehicles, which is one of the main things that they do. Okay, so uh, while I was looking for clips to play for you uh, in this bit, I ran across a guy on YouTube that's very upset about the fact uh, that the show is um, okay. Mm, kind of fake, maybe it's, uh, or maybe it's a fictionalized account of things that happen. But this guy on YouTube, he's really upset uh, about the fact that it's that it's fake. And uh, I was wondering how he took that WWE announcement a few years back. like, <laughs> Wrestling's fake. <laughs> well, the problem with Lizard Lick is it's kind of bad fake. You could, it's kind of easy to see through. They didn't even really try to make it not fake. Uh, for example, in one storyline. Uh, They repossess a van, and this van is being used by a guy to install cable TV. Well, he doesn't own the van. The guy that uh, does, his boss, is behind on the payments, so it gets repoed. Well, they go to repo it while he's on a job installing some guy's cable, and this doesn't sit well with the guy who is getting the cable installed. And he tells the repo guy, uh, Ron, the guy that runs Lizard hey, at least let him finish installing my cable. No dice. Ron hooks it up and uh, drags it out of there. Uh, There's a little fisticuffs, and then uh, later... The guy that was supposed to get cable and the guy, the installer, turn up at the Lizard Lick offices while just Ron's wife is there. And they demand that uh, the installer get his truck back so he can at least finish the job. Uh, No dice. So while no one's looking, the jilted cable customer takes matters into his own hands. And when Ron gets back to the shop, uh, he's in for kind of a surprise.
2: I've never walked into office with food in my hand and not have my dog Repo coming out faster than the speed of light. Where's my dog? Uh,
1: You guessed it. There's been some kind of a dog napping. They uh, bring up the CCTV and uh, are in for a bit of a surprise. Where's
2: Repo? He's right there. Oh, there's Repo. He's at the door. He wants to go in. Look, Bo, it's those guys. The one we just finished in the van from. Him. He's what are doing, with him, dude? He picked Repo. Dude, out. he just picked up my dog. No, no, he's putting up. my dog in the car. I'm going to this guy's house right now. That dude took my dog.
1: That's right. They took his dog. No, dude. Actually, he's a very, uh, a very kind of a charming guy. Nice, nice big Southern fella, and very likable. Probably why the show is so successful, despite the uh, the chicanery that's going on. So anyway, uh, Ron goes back to the guy's house, nay trailer, uh, seriously. And while his buddy. Uh, is talking to the guy that dog-napped the dog uh, and talking to the couple at the front door. Ron sneaks around back, and the punchline of the bit here is that, of course, Ron opens the back door. He calls for repo. His dog gets his dog and foils the potential cable customer. Now, I'm wondering if that, when they went to get this guy's release signed, because he's got to sign a release to be on TV, uh, if he said, well, I'll sign the release if you make sure I get my cable and uh, because otherwise, you know, he's going to sign a release to be on TV, but he'll never be able to see himself because he doesn't have cable. So kind of an O. Henry-esque type of ending, isn't it? Okay, well, there's another, uh, I guess, storyline we got to see before we uh, headed off to the casino. Uh, Ron and his buddy head out to another trailer, yes, and uh, are hooking up this guy's uh, pickup truck. And uh, as they're doing it, I guess the, guy, the, the guy's name is Crazy Walt, apparently. You'll see why or hear why. And uh, the guy, I guess the guy's son and maybe daughter-in-law or daughter come out, and they go, oh, you don't know who you're messing with, and, uh, well, this happens.
2: He's got a gun, Bobby! Bobby! Bobby!
1: Yeah, Crazy Walt opens fire. And uh, afterwards, I'm wondering, and again, you know, if you're going to be on TV, they have to get a release because in another part of the show, they show uh, Ron's wife Amy coming out of a Walmart and talking to him on a cell phone. Well, all the people she's walking past in the parking lot have to be pixelated out because they're not going to bother getting uh, a release from those folks. But Crazy Walt and his family, of course, are, are there in full view. And uh, it got me to wondering I wonder who the poor sap is that had to go back out to the trailer and get that release signed. Okay, rock, paper, scissors.
2: Aw, oh,
1: man! Ha <laughs> dude, you gotta go get the release sign. Hey,
2: okay. okay.
0: Where you want?
1: Hi, Mr. Crazy Walt.
0: You can't have my truck. Now scat before I shoot you. Oh, I'm not. I'm not here for your truck. Um, well, we filmed how you bravely fought off that evil repo man, and we just need your signature so we can show it on TV.
1: On TV, me? That's right. Give me the paper. That's a lovely X, Mr. Crazy Walt. Well, thank you very indeed. I'm gonna be on TV! Woohoo! <laughs> oh, I'm sorry about that, young lady. That's okay, you just leave me. This episode of PF's Tape Recorder is brought to you by Home Shirts Cleveland. For all of your Northeast Ohio vintage t-shirt needs, visit homeshirts.com forward slash Cleveland. You'll also find links to the original Cincy Shirts site, as well as Home Shirts Indianapolis, with more cities to come. That's homeshirts.com forward slash Cleveland. Now, on with the show. Ian Abramson is a stand-up comedian from Los Angeles, California, born and bred. He's known for doing innovative stand-up comedy, but doesn't alienate audiences, but brings them along in an original and unique way. Here now is our interview with Ian Abramson. Awesome. Hey, is it okay if we use the audio here for uh, my podcast? You got it. All right, man. Cool. Well, um... So you're an interesting cat. I was. uh, I've never seen you live, of course, but I was. uh, I'd heard your name. You would
0: know that I'm not a cat. I'm a human. Hi.
1: There you go. See. See. This is why I need to do more research. Need to do more research. There we go. See. This is you learn so much (laughs) in in these interviews. Um, I recognize your name though because you're friendly with uh, a comedian I know, Jackie Caution. You were on her podcast. Uh,
0: yeah, I
1: love Jackie Cason. Yeah, talking about Mayor McCheese, <laughs> which was a great oh, dorkdom. Oh
0: yeah, big big fan of the mayor.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and all the uh, associated characters. Um, that's right. Yeah. So, um, I, I guess um, you didn't talk too much about your comedy though, because it was uh, it was Buster Keaton was the other dorkdom, I believe. Uh, you discussed.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I talked about Buster Keaton a bit on that.
1: Yeah. Well, um, let's discuss some comedy theory then, though, because um, uh. It, I guess I hate to do origin stories because my editors always yell at me about that. But I'm curious, wh- what formed your comic sensibility growing up? Like, was it a cartoon? My or... origin
0: story, I got bitten by a radioactive comedian, and I woke <laughs> up with the strength and powers of a comedian and have just been trying to uh, live up to those powers since. Aha! Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: And so was it? I
0: was originally bitten by a silent comedian, and so I, uh, I didn't hear them coming.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> there you go. Yep. Um it seems like I know with, with Buster Keaton, you know, more of a physical comedy thing. What you do is definitely more uh I would say cerebral. Um
0: Yeah, with, maybe a metaphysical comedian.
1: Metaphysical. <laughs> so, uh, how did uh how did those two things come together though? Was it you drawn to like the physical first and then kind of g- figured how you could uh do that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I um I sort of came upon him in the, in the middle more, but what I, what I like about, uh, Buster Keaton and and other people like that is that, uh, uh, we, is that he, he's very precise. You know, he's, he's, uh, got, uh, a lot of thought put into the way that he might make a joke and just, um, just, uh, how he is is going um, now how he might put together a joke I'm sorry i'm uh, I'm all over the place <laughs> He's That's fine. yeah he, one, one thing about Buster Keaton is that he uh, he was innovative both in as a filmmaker and just as this wonderful um, uh, physical comedian so he he might do a pratfall fall that is very funny, but then also, he's playing with the camera in a way that hasn't been seen before. He did a, a short called The Playhouse, I believe, and in it he does a, a, a choreographed dance with 12 Buster Keaton's on screen. So that meant he somehow managed to film 12 versions of himself on screen at the same time and have that dance line up in a way that's aesthetically pleasing. and. It's not like that technology existed. He had to think, you know what, I want to do this on screen and then literally invent in the camera how he could make that happen.
1: And, and that seems a... And, oh, to go ahead.
0: No, yeah, and that's just fascinating to
1: me. And it seems, I guess, that does kind of uh, stick with you to this day because um, you seem to be a, a very what-if guy. What if we tried this for, you know, like, Seven Minutes in Purgatory, for example, which, which you're uh, uh, widely noted for these days is uh, you know kind of kind of turning the format uh, on its head uh, a little bit and um is, is that always are there still things that are like conventional that still crack you up cuz like I've, I've for example speaking of Buster Keaton and stuff a buddy I used to work with uh, said no matter what the thing that would always crack him up is when the, the one guy would hold the ladder and the other guy would duck just in time and it would swing around and go, it would crack him up every time even though this one of the oldest comedy conventions uh, but you know, then there's other courses. You think, you know, geez, have we seen that a million times? How can we do something different? I mean, are there still things that are conventionally funny that crack you up? Someone slipping and falling, or uh, a, you know, a, a pun or something like that that just gets you.
0: Sure, yeah. I mean, I definitely i I think that those things are uh, are inherently funny, and i I think that just the when you can feel that the high stakes is what somebody's standing on a ladder and trying to, I, I don't know, let's say hang Christmas lights or something yeah. on a ladder. They've got a clear a clear goal, hanging Christmas lights, but then also the stakes are high because they're in the air, and then uh, they fall off a ladder, and also uh, you know that they're probably not going to die falling off the ladder. And so this oh, yeah. unexpected, they don't see it coming, is inherently funny, you know?
1: Yeah. So I, I there have been some, some comparisons to Andy Kaufman, I suppose, but I, not directly. More so in the fact that you just you, you always seem to be looking for, to do to do comedy uh, in a different way. Do you consciously look for those things, or do those things pop in your head and go, "Hey, what if we did did it something this way?" Uh,
0: you know, I definitely um, I appreciate Andy Kaufman a lot. You know, I hope I can work with him someday, and I <laughs> think that he. Uh, definitely came at it from a way of trying to discover something new comedically. And, um, that is the the goal for me as well, you know, trying to, uh, to find a new way to get a laugh. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I would say that we're probably pulling from the same places. I look to him, less to try to do the the type of joke that he did, but instead yeah. they, uh, what's, what's the point of that? You know, he's the well, yeah. guy that wanted to try to find a new type of joke. And so it makes me want to also find a new type of joke, you yeah. know?
1: Right, well, um, and' performance wise it's it, it, you know, I don't see the similarity at all, only when it was pointed out that, oh, yeah, yeah, when you're looking from that standpoint, just from you know, it's just like comparing two musicians, you know a heavy metal musician and maybe a classical composer, well they're they're similar in that they both tried to do this new thing within the framework of what they were doing that's what i was that's how I was making, yeah,
0: absolutely, yeah. thank you i I appreciate that, yeah.
1: So when you're uh, out in Los Angeles, are you out doing shows uh, a lot and trying out, kind of experimenting with different things, or are you just developing you know, jokes and, and different things, or how how do you uh, treat that? And a lot of guys like to work on their stuff when they're on the coasts.
0: Yeah, certainly. I'm definitely always trying to, to make sure I'm going out to shows and trying new things and trying to develop new ideas, and, um, you know, that's important to me and something that I, I want uh, to... Do that's uh, an important part of what I do is trying to find something, uh, a new joke or something. So, yeah, I'm certainly doing shows as often as I can out here.
1: Now, uh... when you showed up at college, you know, they it, your bio says you took a lot of uh, speech classes and stuff like that. Were you interestedly, did you come in being interested in comedy and then finally figured out, oh, this is the, this might be the pathway to it, or did that kind of come along as you were in college?
0: Yeah, I'd say that that came along uh, as I was in college. I had done theater in high school and um, enjoyed that. I think I wanted to be a writer. You know, I think I wanted to. Um, I wanted to maybe perform a little bit, but I didn't know how that would play out and um, the more I kind of read about Vaudeville and Steve Martin, I think I realized like, oh, the process of really trying something new out and trying to really refine it and make it as good as it can be was very interesting to me and something that I wanted to do more of.
1: And so you were concurrently uh, interested in improv as well uh, so much so that you went to Chicago. How was that experience like?
0: Yeah, I I thought I was going to do more improv. I moved to Chicago thinking that that's uh, most of what I would be doing. And it turned out that uh, like eight months into improv, I I just felt more drawn to stand-up and said, I'm going to do more of this. You know, I'm doing a little bit of both, but I think I'm going to really buckle down and focus more on stand-up. And um, I'm glad I did, you know. But I have plenty of friends that do improv, and um, I can enjoy watching that, certainly.
1: So when you were doing improv, did you kind of have the same feeling of, you know, you kind of wanted to you know, push the envelope or do it on that set, or were you more in- interested in learning the, the the constructs of it and the uh, the basics?
0: I think for me with improv, I, I didn't get past the training wheels. You know, I think I was still, um, I didn't get far enough along to even say, like, let me figure out the ins and outs. I just, I didn't get to a point. Where I taking to just jumping into a scene and, and creating something new and exciting and funny in the moment, um, that I think improv relies on. Um, and I mean, maybe if I had continued to do that, I would have kind of gotten past that and, and, and found a way to embrace that. But I just felt more comfortable going on stage with a plan that then I could, um, try different things out from there. Does that
1: make sense? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, a lot of uh, people I talk to that, you know, did, have done both, but then go to the stand-up. They like the control of the stand-up, because then there isn't, like, you know, you're not you're not relying on other people, and you're not potentially letting other people down if you, you know, if your yes-and isn't going in the right direction, and so forth. You know, you've only got kind of yourself to blame if things don't work. Um, but on, with your stand-up, you know, everything I've seen, of course, is hilarious, but it's also... You know, it's the same guy, but it's also a lot really different. You know, there's just, you know, do you change the set, you know, night to night, or does it just, you know, just whatever pops into your head and which way the audience is going, or is it fairly consistent night to night?
0: Um, it really depends. The thing about stand-up is that... Um, one of the requirements is that it's happening live and it's happening right in front of you. And that's one of the things I wanted to play with in seven minutes in purgatory, where it's like the, the comedian isn't right in front of you, but, uh, part of what's so exciting about it to me is that I'm not able to stop and do another take, you know? So that means if somebody drops a glass accidentally, then that's that's part of what we're all experiencing right then, you know? So yeah. I don't think that it's possible to, have things go exactly the same way you know You they're going to be a little different one way or another um, but that, that said you know I definitely also enjoy trying to put things together in a way that's um, that fits together well and I, I like thinking about an order to uh, the way I might put together my jokes or something like that so uh, yeah I think it depends on the night
1: so with Seven Minutes of Purgatory, for the listeners who aren't uh, aware, it's um, a stand-up comedian goes into, uh, I guess essentially what's a soundproof booth, kind of like on a game show, and then the audience views him in there or her, and uh, they do their set without audience reaction to spur them on. How did you come up with that idea? Was it w- we were at a show one night and uh, just figured what, we, you know, what would it be like if we took out the, the, the safety net or the guidance of the audience laughter?
0: So I mean I, I think that I I was thinking about how with stand up there's a relationship between the audience and the performer. You know the audience is responding to the performer in that they're either laughing or not laughing, but then also the performer is responding to however whatever the audience is doing. You know they're taking in the fact that they are or are not laughing and how hard they're laughing or um, anything like that. So. That was interesting to me, and I wanted to just kind of explore that and play with it and I thought that one interesting way to do that might be to um, remove the comedian's ability to hear the audience and I built the show around that
1: and how long has that been running out? Do you do that in a consistent space in Los Angeles or is it uh does it move around
0: um it it moves around certainly we've tried it um and all in a number of venues all around the country now. Um, so that's been an exciting thing to do. We've tried it outside a ca- uh, cafe bookstore in Denver a couple times. We, we've we oh, done wow. it on the roof of the hideout in Chicago. We did it at the Music Box movie theater in uh, Chicago. We did it at UCB Sunset out here. There's, um, part, part of the fun is also building the show around whatever venue we're performing
1: it at so wait when you do it on a roof is the comedian on the roof and the rest of the crowd is inside somewhere or how? Is that, how is yeah, that
0: yeah so when we did that at the hideout the comedians performed on the roof literally standing above the audience like the Beatles so that <laughs> meant when the comedian was walking out to the microphone you would hear the footsteps above you
1: oh wow yeah, yeah. That's... That
0: that was that was an exciting um, byproduct of how we needed to do that show. It was the only space that made sense to do that show in,
1: ah. and it turned
0: out to be a fun, exciting way to do it.
1: So, given all that, has it really uh, opened new doors for your set personally and the way you do comedy?
0: Uh, Seven minutes in purgatory. Yeah, <clears throat> it's definitely made me think about it. It's definitely made. Uh, definitely made me think about that kind of relationship Um, watching how different comedians respond to it how someone that maybe anxious how do they handle that anxiety maybe it kind of is exciting for them to um, not have to hear how the audience is responding and what are they doing with that maybe they have thought of a fun weird bit for this and uh, and how will that play out I don't know it's uh, there's there's a lot I think that I've I've learned just by kind of watching people try different things with it
1: are there certain types of comedians that it works better for because because there are some comedians that don't care what the audience thinks I'm not, not don't they don't care but they are a little they'll, they'll just plow forward. No matter what, if they've got that goal in mind. Another, I guess, comedians where they're like, you know, like, uh, like I suggested earlier, like you know, maybe the crowd kind of guides them where the, the things are going to go. And if there's no crowd reaction, you know, they've got to maybe decide on a different path. Is that is that kind of how that works?
0: Um, yeah, I would I would say that that's 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 pretty accurate. I um, I don't know. It's just been a it's just been a blast to to kind of see how that plays out and the, the different ways that that can go.
1: And uh, I want to ask you about The Onion. How did you uh, end up writing for them?
0: Um, they're based in Chicago, and I started talking to some of them, and they, they had become familiar with me and wanted to kind of try me out as a contributor, and I went through that process and have contributed since. Yeah, it's a, it's a real blast to get to be part of that and get to contribute jokes and try to be part of uh, something that I've loved for a very long time.
1: Yeah, those guys are geniuses, and uh, I guess by extension that would make you a genius because... uh,
0: (laughs) I I, I don't know about that. I'm uh, I'm a cog in a machine that is uh, genius is what I would say. I wouldn't uh, take credit for all the amazing stuff That the Onion does, I get. To, I'm lucky enough to get to contribute to it.
1: This I was going to say. If you get something in there, I mean, I rarely do. I read a dud piece in the in the Onion. You know, it's just very rare. So every, everything you know is at least really good, and most everything is uh, excellent. Um, like I've I've contributed to, you know, these other uh, mom and what I call mom and pop. You know, news parody organizations, and I always fancied myself. Sure. Well, I could I could like to write for the Onion, uh, but unfortunately, I know I'm not good enough. I'm down here in Double A and that's the major leagues man i mean maybe you know you work hard if I, you know was playing every day i could maybe make it up to the bigs but um yeah that's uh, what kind of stuff did you you write for the headlines or is it uh, pieces for like feature pieces or sports or what or just whatever pops into your head
0: i've done a, I've done a couple different things for them most, mostly contributed jokes to larger pieces okay you know that's that's most of what i've done
1: yeah okay yeah that's important because once you get past the headline you still need some you know some jokes to support it to you know, support the overall piece. Uh,
0: yeah, you know, I mean, it's just fun to see um, yeah, the, the, the way that it can come together and how they find their point of view. I've learned so much about point of view, just having to think like again because they're the best at having a point of view.
1: Definitely. Uh, so any other projects on the horizon that you think you would like to, to tackle at some point, some other vehicle for your humor?
0: You know, I'm always um, always doing fun shows. I'm very excited to come out to Minneapolis. You know, I had never been to that city, but I've heard great things, and I can't say enough how excited I am to explore that city and see if there's any historical McDonald's land memorabilia <laughs> around the town. So if there anybody go. wants to point me in that direction, please. Um, I'll buy you a McDouble if you find me a Mayor McCheese.
1: Okay. Well, we'll extend Catholic. that out to uh, the listeners around the country and, and around the globe. Um, we have about five thousand listeners. So, if people are in some other cities, we'll track you down for the thing. beautiful uh, in Cincinnati here, where I am. Uh, we invented we I had no part in it. With the filet of fish sandwich was invented by the uh, a McDonald's franchisee here for um, because of uh, Good Friday, very very uh, Catholic uh, population base here in Cincinnati, oh. and yeah, so the filet of fish was invented here.
0: Wow! There yeah. was a fileo fish mascot. Um,
1: oh yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: originally, yeah. Captain Crook was
1: right, the right.
0: kind of go-to fileo fish <laughs> representative. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Where the Hamburglar stole hamburgers, uh, fileo fish was a captain. Uh, I was a pirate that stole fileo fish.
1: There you go. I forgot about that. And then, of course, uh, Grimace and uh forgot, What was the story on Grimace?
0: Grimace was a he was he was another one of the villains that originally stole shakes.
1: That's so right. Was,
0: vaguely shaped like an upside-down shake.
1: Ah, that's what it was. I couldn't remember what that what that was. I remember Birdie came out, of course, when uh, they introduced breakfast in the early Correct. 80s. Yeah, yeah, Birdie the early bird. Yeah, there we go. Man. Well, all right, sir. Well, well it was good talking to you. Thank you uh, for taking the time today, and uh, this will be in print uh, in City Pages, uh, in print and online, and the podcast will drop in a couple of weeks as well, and hopefully we'll get Wonderful. you here in Cincinnati sometime soon as well. I think we have, I think we'd dig you here as well.
0: Yes,
1: I just can't wait. Alright, Ian. Well thanks a lot, man. And uh have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Thanks again to Ian Abramson for being on the show. You can catch Ian well, I'm not sure where because he has no tour dates on his website but if you want to know any more about ian abramson you can go to ianabramson.com also check out jackie Cation's podcast the dork forest just go scroll back through and find his episode Uh, he talks more about the buster keaton thing and about um mcdonald land toys which we touched on at the end of our interview there but uh he goes into some uh some deep territory there with jackie of course that's what her podcast is all about so do check that out Let me see the credits. Uh, PFDA Recorder logo designed by Dan Koble. Original music composed and performed by Doug O'Connor and John Ropolis with a little help from me. Uh, I think that's about going to do it then. Um, We're trying to chase down a couple of really huge guests. Well, huge to us, uh, but also huge to you. You'll know who these folks are, and I think you'll be very excited. Uh, Trying to get that nailed down as well. So we're going to get to the Song of the Week here. Song of the Week is from Fleur East, and uh, Fleur East was on the 11th season of The X Factor over in the U.K., Uh, This song uh, got the number three in the UK charts. It did not chart here, however. And uh, which happens a lot with the Xpectrum winners over there, except for like One Direction and a few others. I think Ed had Sheeran maybe. I don't even know if Sheeran was. uh, Ollie Mers was. But anyway. Uh, and he only charted once here, and he's a huge hit over there. But I remember back in the day, in the 80s, you know, I used to be kind of a music snob, and I've lightened up over the years. But um, a lot of the stuff I liked was stuff that was really just top 40 music that charted in the UK, but didn't chart here. And it wasn't that it charted here that I didn't like it. It was just the fact that once it charted here, you just heard it everywhere. And even to this day, there's stuff that when it comes on the radio... I'm trying to think of a good example of a song now that's on that you know I won't buy it because I know I can just hear it everywhere so there's no need for me to buy it I'm not going to listen to it beyond what I hear it on the on the radio between uh, BBC Radio One and occasional listening to Top Forty Radio in this country and I think Florista the same way if this were to be picked up by Top Forty Radio here. Uh, I probably wouldn't listen to it much more than I listened to it, you know, then, and also it's, it's on Radio 1 a lot. But anyway, uh, we were driving around, coming back from a shopping trip, and uh, I had one of my PF samplers on, and this came on, and fangirl was like, wow, what is this? I'm really liking it. It is Fleur East. It is the song of the week. The song is called Sax. So long, and thanks for listening. <laughs>
2: Trying to run that game, it, it sounds so sweet when it say my name. I say boy stop. Run it back. You can talk that talk but can you play that sax? To the boss last night buying out the boss that I can ride top down in his Jaguar. I'm like boy stop. Run that back. You can drive all that but can you play that sax? So, baby baby I'm Axe, give it to me. You better play that sax. Uh. Okay. Yeah. You better play that sax. Ooh, last week, honey, he's so vain, yeah. He been loving himself on the and yeah. I'm like, boy, stop. Run that back. Goddamn you, father. Can you play that sax? Better fly that soon, Mr. Know-it-all. Think you got flood down to a formula. I'm like.